Our scripture this morning comes from Acts chapter 15. We'll go through verses 1 through 21, and it's found on page 1097 in your pew Bible. Again, that's Acts 15, 1 through 21, page 1097 in the pew Bible. Luke writes, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after, they had, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having deemed their hearts by faith, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Here ends the reading of the Lord. Let us go to God in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How do you get into the kingdom of God? This is one of the most foundational questions we ask 
when we hear the good news? How is it we get in to the kingdom of God? How can I be saved? And the, what happens with this question, how can I be saved? If, if we don't know how we are saved, it has an impact over our entire lives and our calling to tell other people about Jesus. If we're unsure about how we got our own salvation or if we have a misconceived idea that doesn't match up with Scripture, well, then we're going to falter along the way. And in fact, I suspect not knowing exactly how we are saved leads a lot of us to shy away from moments of telling other people the good news of Jesus. See, if it were just simply telling what Jesus has done, that he lived, that he was the son of God, that he performed miracles, and then he was arrested, he was crucified, shedding his blood, and three days later he was raised from the dead. We can all do that fairly easily, but then comes the question, well then how am I saved? How is one come to salvation? And this is one of the most foundational doctrines that we have, a doctrine as a set of beliefs for God. And, and so here, the early church has some controversy over the doctrine of salvation. Paul and Barnabas are out preaching to the Gentiles, exactly what Peter had preached to Cornelius, that it is by mere grace and by faith in Christ alone that one is saved. We hear Paul write these words over and over in all of his letters, most notably in Romans in chapter, I believe it's 10, is that correct? 10, where he says you got to believe in your heart the resurrection and confess with your mouth. Is that correct, Chris? I'm pointing to Chris. Um, uh, and so, yeah, in Romans 10, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord you believe in your heart that he's resurrected and you will be saved. This is what Paul and Barnabas have taught, that salvation is available to all the Gentiles. We have seen it. They've gone around bragging in Phoenicia and Samaria as to what they accomplished with the Gentiles. They were in Antioch. Here in the very beginning of this scripture, they're in Antioch in Syria, the church that sent them. And it tells us at the beginning, but some men came down from Judea. And they were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas had just gone to the region of Galatia. And so now they're back in the Antioch church. We can go to Paul's letter to the Galatians and get a bit more information about what's going on here in this moment. And in the second chapter, we see that Peter is also here when these men from Judea come up, because Paul tells us that these certain men from Judea were men who came in the name of James, James the just, James the leader of the church in Jerusalem, James who would write the letter of James in the New Testament, a brother of Jesus, that James. And they came in his name. And so when people will come in the name of James, because he's a brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is the mother church of all churches, they come with some authority. And so they come saying, well, what Paul and Barnabas taught you was only half the gospel. And in fact, your salvation's at great risk because you've yet to be circumcised. And so if you don't not only have faith, you also need a good work to go along with it in order to be saved. Well, this is the controversy. This is where they disagree. These certain men came saying that it's faith plus works. And Paul and Barnabas are saying clearly, no, no, it is faith alone. 
is all that is required from us. And so they get into a debate. It says it was no small argument that they are in. And so the church decided, instead of having this debate here, we're going to send you to Jerusalem. We're going to send others with you. Gather the apostles and elders. Y'all figure it out. And so here in Acts 15, we get the model for us as a church on how we settle doctrinal disputes. So if we came to different understandings of what's going on, the elders of the local church are to confer with Scripture and make a decision. But here they are. They head to Jerusalem. Now we remember Peter was there when these certain men from James came. Paul tells us in his letter in the second chapter that Peter, all of a sudden when these men from James came, these Judaizers, that Peter backed away from the Gentiles. He stopped eating with them. He changed his diet back to his Jewish diet and would only hang out with the Jewish Christians. Paul saw the hypocrisy in it and called him out. And luckily, Peter repented of this and came back to the full understanding of the gospel that's by grace through faith in Christ alone. So now they're traveling down to Jerusalem. And as they go along the way, Paul and Barnabas continue to tell the other churches in Phoenicia and Samaria all that occurred and how the Gentiles have come to this great faith. And the scripture tells us they're rejoicing at what is happening. In fact, we could go back in scripture that when Peter goes and tells the church in Jerusalem about Cornelius's conversion and the Gentiles that came to faith, we will see the scripture tell us, and they rejoiced. But what has happened since then? What has happened since then is there has been a great number of Gentiles who are coming to faith. It's not just one or two anymore. Now it's a whole mess of them, and they're infiltrating us, right? And so anytime there is an understanding of them and us, and them begin to outnumber us, we as people get defensive very quickly, and we begin to build up walls. We begin to build up barriers. We begin to put distance between us and them, and we make attempts to make the other evil. And here, that's exactly what is happening around the issue of the gospel. Suddenly, the, the Jewish Christians are beginning to get outnumbered by Gentiles, and now their authority is feeling threatened, their power is feeling threatened. And so they are saying, no, 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 you've got to become Jewish first. And we've seen throughout Scripture over and over again that very few people are willing to go through the conversion necessary to also become Jewish. Um, It it requires circumcision, and then as the Pharisee party said in Jerusalem, it also requires adherence to the law. Now, the the teens know this because they just heard Pastor Chris tell them, what can we get by following the law? Can we uphold it perfectly? No, we can't. So what is our only way to salvation? Grace. It's by grace alone. But here's the controversy that's hitting the church. They're running into this and fighting about it. And so they call all the apostles and elders in Jerusalem to get together. And there they decide on the doctrine of salvation. Now it says while they're there in verse 7, there was much debate. Luke doesn't go in and tell us about all the arguing, the name calling. We've all been to that kind of board meeting, right? You can imagine in your head the names that are called and, and the things that were thrown across the room because of the disagreements. It says after much debate... Peter stands up. 
Peter, the apostle Peter, the one who's been the voice for the apostles, the one who preached the gospel message first, and the one who, as he comes here and reminds us, was the one first picked by God to go and preach to the Gentiles so that the rest would see this was actually God's plan. If Peter does it, it must be from God. And he reminds them of this. He says, remember, Cornelius had a vision. I was visited by angels. And then the men came and got me and took me to Cornelius and I proclaimed the gospel. And God saw their heart, he tells them. God not only saw their heart, he gave them the Holy Spirit, the same as he gave to us. He says there's no difference between them and us. We both have the same faith. We've both been given the same grace. We both hold the same salvation. So he yeah, asks, so, so why do you want to burden the Gentiles with something that you cannot bear yourself? He talks about it as a yoke. That would be a burden that they couldn't bear. And he says, our fathers couldn't bear this burden. We couldn't bear this burden. And the burden is the burden of the law. That the faith plus having to uphold the law perfectly still is a burden. That grace frees us from upholding perfectly the law. Because no one in human history has ever done it except for Jesus the Christ. So Peter reminds them of this. And the assembly was quiet. There was no longer talking in there. Because he says they're saved by faith. In Christ, just as we are. And it's dead silence. That's how much they respected Peter's opinion, his voice. Well, then Barnabas and Paul get up to speak. Now, it's interesting that they changed the order of the names from Paul and Barnabas to Barnabas and Paul. We make note of simple changes like this in Scripture because Luke is, is pointing something out to us. They're in the Jerusalem church. Barnabas has a bit more authority, a bit more of a reputation in the Jerusalem church as being someone trustworthy than Paul. If we remember, Paul kind of started the great persecution against them. So there might still be a little bit of mistrust between the church and Paul. But anyway, they both speak. He doesn't tell us all they tell because we just read 13 and 14. He doesn't want to rehash it for us. We saw all the miracles and the signs. We read of how the Gentiles are coming to faith. And then it's James. Then James speaks. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, brother of Jesus. James the just. And he has moderated over this debate. The final one to speak. And he says how Peter related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them for a people of his own. And then he does what we're all called to do when we're faced with trying to figure out doctrine, when we're faced with our emotions, our traditions, our reasons, is to verify them with Scripture. And the truth is, if we come to an understanding with our emotions, our traditions, our reasons, and we can't find support for them in Scripture, then we are to submit to what Scripture calls us to. And so James 
uses the scriptures from the prophets. The prophet Amos is the one he specifically quotes. And he says, after this, I will return and I'll rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now when Christians go back and they hear these words from Amos, this tent of David to be rebuilt and restored refers to the prophecy of the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus the Christ, for he is the seed of David. And so knowing that this is about the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation into the right hand of God, then it goes into the second truth found in it, that of all mankind, there will also be Gentiles who are called by God to faith in Christ. So now we have the Apostle Peter testifying to it, the Apostle Paul testifying to it, Barnabas testifying to it, and Scripture testifying to it. So James says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. This my judgment is, is the Greek word krinos, and, and I think a, a stronger translation of this, uh, of this word is needed, is warranted in this setting with knowing that James is the head of the Jerusalem church. We can trans, translate krinos to mean I rule. And so we can read it says, therefore I rule that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And it becomes unanimous within all of the assembly that it is by grace through faith in Christ alone that we are saved. That it is not faith plus works. And so suddenly these men who have come in the name of James, saying you must also be circumcised and you must uphold the law of Moses. James stands before them and all of the apostles and the elders stand there and say, no, it is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Nothing added to it. John MacArthur, the president of Master Seminary, he quips that adding to faith, adding to the work of Jesus on the cross would be equivalent to one of us picking up a pencil and attempting to make the Mona Lisa better. We can't do it. It's a masterpiece. Well, that's exactly what Jesus on the cross is. It's the ultimate masterpiece. And all are lost without Christ and headed for destruction. We know this from Scripture, that sin is a liar. The devil is a liar. All of the happiness, all of the life, all of the good things that we have been promised from sin and temptations and from the devil, from those things in this world, we know that what is promised is a false front. What looks like a good time, what looks like happiness, what looks like I will finally be satisfied turns out to be a false front and it gets knocked down over and over. And so we go through a serious pattern of chasing this dream that cannot be fulfilled in this world because it is only through Christ Jesus that life is found. 
Only in Christ is there life, is there peace, is there joy, is there real love. Only in Christ is that found. Everything else is a mirage, it's a false front. And we'll spend our lives chasing happiness in the wrong places unless we put all of our hope and our faith in Christ. And here at this council, they make it clear. It's by grace. No other means. No other works. Nothing you can do to earn it. It's by grace. By grace alone in which we are saved. And while we have gained great clarity from the Jerusalem Council here in Acts 15, still, over time, we continue to want to add to grace. We want to make it faith plus something that for some reason, we as humans feel the need to contribute to our own salvation, that we want to get what we deserve, that if we get what we deserve, though, according to Scripture, We get wrath, we get judgment, we get God's justice laid upon us. But what we have in Christ, faith alone in Christ, is free grace, unmerited favor. But while we were yet sinners, God gave his only begotten son who died for us and was Raised from the dead so that we might be forgiven and stand in right standing. So that we can have eternal life with the Father in heaven. This is the good news. This is how salvation goes. It is by grace and grace alone. We can't add to it. Anything we add to it, Paul calls and and tells us that what we have to offer is a filthy rag. And what the Jerusalem Council tells us And what scripture tells us over and over again, we will fail at keeping the law. So if we think we can earn salvation and we want to get what we deserve, we want to add something to this. Be prepared for death and destruction. It's headed our way. But when we put all of our hope, all of our trust in Christ alone. That grace is free. And it's freeing. No longer do we have to spin a hamster wheel trying to earn salvation. Rather, we get to live free from the judgment of God, free into the salvation through Christ so that we can joyfully be obedient. Not because we are trying to be perfect to get God, but because he so loved us, we just want to honor and glorify him. We get to go out and tell other people that we get to love those that are cast aside. We get to love our neighbors and love our enemies as hard as that is. We can do that knowing we will trip. We will mess up. But that nothing, absolutely nothing in life nor death, nor in all creation will ever separate us from the love of Christ ever again. By putting our faith in Christ, we become his sheep. And no matter how far away as a sheep we may stray, 
we never lose our owner. We always belong to him. That is the free grace through Jesus that is offered. This is why it is so important that they came to an understanding of this. It's not by what we do, it's by what he did. It's why we gather here to praise God, not to praise what we did this week, but to praise God for what he has done through Jesus Christ in our own lives. It's not about us. It's about God. This whole book isn't about us. It's about what God has done for you. And in there, we see the greatest love letter written. That while we were yet sinners, deserving, deserving not of anything but death and destruction, Christ died for us, proving exactly how much God loves us. And all it takes from us is faith in Christ. Because he alone is sufficient for our salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we gathered here this morning to praise you and to give you thanks for the salvation we have through Jesus Christ. Lord, as much as we want to try and earn our way to you, we recognize we cannot, and that it's only by your grace that we will have eternal life. Lord, may we live a life in gratitude, in joyful obedience, in good and in bad, praising your name, because we know That death does not have the last word, but Jesus stands victorious. And it's because of him and through him, you have adopted us, your sons and daughters. We give all our praise, all, our, all the glory, and all the honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.